It's Monday morning, you wake up, you stretch, you get out of bed, you turn on the news and you go to pour your first cup of coffee and finally decide to look at your phone to get a sense on how the week is gonna go only to see that your company is merging with another company. Joining Carly and I today on the second episode of season two's Construction Leaders podcast is Dan Doyon, director at Maxim Consulting Group to talk to us about why we are seeing this happen more often in the construction industry and why companies make acquisitions and mergers. So Dan, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you. You recently hosted a webinar on this topic for CMAA and Carly immediately thought this would be an excellent topic for the podcast. Your background is in software with two bachelor's degree, one in computer information systems, one in management with an MBA from Georgetown. Go Hoyas. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> Why don't you start off by telling us a little bit more about yourself, your background, and the three article series you did last year on mergers and acquisitions. Sure. Thank you. And thanks again for having me. You know, I wish I could say that I architected my career, that I said I was going to have a software background and then move to an MBA and that the software would play such an important part in the MBA business world. But I didn't have that foresight. I kind of fell into it. I went as high as I could in the uh, in the software business. I said, I need, a, I need a business degree. Some of my clients are asking for more and more around that. As they were merging um, their companies together, they had all kinds of software challenges. So it was interesting. Uh, that's how I fell into it, though. I went back to Georgetown, as you've mentioned, got my MBA. And then we found that a lot of the business when I was with KPMG was finding out how the software could help drive the combined companies. And so that's kind of how I fell into this. And, you know, I came into the construction industry because interesting, they were lagging in many of the areas from some of the people and some of the other industries. So they could have the most impact from some of these things. So it's been interesting as these companies merge all the challenges that they have, same as other companies, but the software is a little bit lagging behind. So it, it was a real driver to help drive some profitability in this. I definitely think it's a unique background to come in from an, uh, the software development side of things. You worked at Dell too, right? Yeah. A division of Dell, it was a company that was acquired by them in Cisco at JV, but yes, that's right. <laughs> and Dell's had the same challenges too, as they roll up companies. So I was part of that. It's interesting though. Um, you mentioned the, the three articles we wrote. I work with a CFMA to come up with these and, and it's been really interesting. Some of the things that have come out of that in terms of people calling and saying, I always wondered what the challenge would be around buying a company, merging with a company, being acquired by another company. And I tried to simplify it as much as I could in terms of demystifying it. And I mentioned to you when we were prepping for the call that sometimes people look at this who run companies and they say it's too much too complicated to run an acquisition or be acquired. What's the better thing? And then we find out a lot of the times it's, it's very simple. It's not just for the Wall Street types. And that's kind of been the, the message that I deliver when I, when I work with clients on this kind of thing. Yeah, Dan, I was, I was actually going to ask about that because I feel like we've been hearing more and more about mergers and acquisitions within the construction industry. So what are the typical types of companies and the sizes of companies who are doing these mergers and acquisitions? You know, you automatically think of a billion dollar company going through this process, but what really are the types of companies that can do this? Right. One of the biggest things when people say M&A or mergers and acquisitions, they go, oh, that's a Wall Street thing, right? That's a billion dollar company thing. But when you look at the average construction company, it's around $11 million 
that means a lot. 70% of them are 11 million. That means most of them are under 11 million. And so most of the times the larger companies and even the smaller companies are just looking to do a point solution. I don't want to wait to grow this part of my business. And so I want to acquire a company and there's multiple ways. We'll talk about that of why people acquire companies, but the biggest driver is I need to acquire that client or that area that's missing in my company and I'm, or I, I don't want to compete with them anymore. But we're seeing a lot of the smaller companies getting rolled up into medium-sized companies. So the larger companies are getting larger and the smaller companies getting swallowed up by medium companies. So we're seeing this divergence, large, much larger companies and, and then this the medium-sized companies and it's it's spreading. So you're seeing these construction companies that are moving into other trades so they don't have to subcontract. And we're seeing more and more of that. And I'll tell you, Carl, it's a great question because the major reasons people do it are either I want to drive revenue, my top line. I have a computer system, which we talked about a minute ago, and it's doing my accounting and my project management. And I'd like to use one system and that company really has a great system. And I don't want to spend quarter million dollars of time and money to invest in a new system and migrate. I'd rather just acquire their company and start using their infrastructure to help me run my business. And so that's a lot of the, the times that's a big driver. Well, it's interesting. I, we see a lot of this happening within the construction industry all the time, but you hear about it from the bigger ones. You hear the CBREs taking over here, or you hear answer is buying out a bunch of people that's a more of a medium size but it's actually happening a lot on the granular level I, and i'm wondering if there's more reasons for those kinds of acquisitions and mergers that are happening and why a construction company may want to look at that for the future mm -hmm. it's true you're that's absolutely right so companies saying hey i'm doing a lot of work here but i don't have the talent that i need because it's so competitive right now to get talent qualified skilled individuals that a lot of my clients are saying, how do I do this, Dan? What's the best way? And I really like this guy. I've been trying to hire him from this company. And I just say, rather than trying to hire him and his group, what about going after the company and merging them in? And that, that usually doesn't come to mind to get through some of these growth issues. How do I grow my company? How do I get this talent? A lot of times, for example, I had an electrical contractor that didn't have a service business. They were doing a lot of construction, but not a lot of service. So they acquired a business that was heavy service, but not a lot of construction. And so that's been a lot of challenge for people is just kind of knowing and believing and being able to execute an acquisition or a merger is something that can be easily done. And it's not that complicated. You know, I tell people all the time, you don't have to do it yourself. And that's kind of the thing. People aren't in the larger companies, like Carly mentioned, the billion dollar companies, a lot of times... They're used to working with management consulting companies and so forth, but a lot of the smaller companies, they don't understand it. It's complex to them. It seems expensive, but if you're looking at what the end goal is and hitting specific KPIs or specific goals, it allows you to achieve that much quicker than it would on your own. And probably I would argue um, you're able to do it unless you have a lot of in-house experience, which a lot of smaller companies don't. So. I've been here for about 11 years, almost 12 years now, uh, and I'm very curious because I've worked with the entomologist, I've worked with the AV folks, I've worked in a bunch of different associations, a CMAA coming here. I've noticed in the past 11 or 12 years, a lot of mergers and acquisitions in this industry. Is there a reason why construction does this more than other industries? It's because if you look across all the trades, 
the thresholds for starting a company is very low for this. And so you're seeing a lot more smaller companies that know the trade, they know the business, and they're able to grow it up quickly enough to where they can make it a business for them and provide for themselves, their family, a couple of people that work for them, but they don't know the business of the business. And that's what I tell people all the time. They know the trade, they know the business, but they don't know the business of running the business. And so the challenge is when they get to a million, 5 million, 10, 25, those are usually the thresholds where something has to change. They're challenged. And because of that, they're looking around and they, they tend to hit a plateau in terms of company performance. They don't want to grow their backend infrastructure. They don't want to grow their IT systems, for example, or uh, their support infrastructure. And so they're capped at their performance or they, they're hesitant to do that because of the expenses involved. And so they look to be acquired or somebody will look at them and say, they have what I need, but they're not going to be so expensive as a medium company. I can't acquire them. So I think that to answer your question, I think a lot of the thresholds for actually starting a, a construction company are lower and somebody has a client and they can, they can actually start. So it puts a lot more, um, you know, I call it a, you know, strategic targets available into the field where you say, hey, that's something I could be interested in. Or those two companies I've done, I was mentioning to Carly, you know, I had two companies that I was acquiring for somebody and at the same time, and they're much smaller companies. And they had the problems that I just described where they know the business, they're very good technically, but they can't run the business of the business. They can't take it to that next level. You know, if you speak to these gentlemen who ran these two companies, they said, this is great. Now I don't have to worry about X, Y, and Z, running the business, managing the business, hiring people, because this larger company now will handle all that, I call it back office, but the office type activities, and I can focus on running the business. And so it's really interesting when you speak to a lot of these people, they say, it's kind of a collective sigh as the paperwork is signed uh, at the end. And they say, well, this is great. I don't have to worry about it, whether I should have a Christmas party or not, or a or a barbecue in the summer because all that kind of overhead things are taken care of. But I think that paints a perfect picture to what translates back to an episode we did last season with Paul Foster and, and Cotter about starting your own business and how they always said, make sure you you hire somebody and you get some help and you know, you're getting somebody to help with the finances and stuff. I think it goes hand in hand with what you're talking about. Yeah. Those are the kind of challenges that people have, but when they start a company, they don't think about those issues. And um, you know, when people start actually going after a company or having the, the growth challenges usually drives this. It's usually either a second generation family. We see a lot of families that are doing this and the second generation is saying, Hey, why are we doing things the way we've always done? And I always tell the story about five monkeys in a cage, right? This is the actual test. Then they spray them all with water. Uh, they put, they put a, a bunch of bananas at the top of a ladder. And then it, one monkey goes after it, they spray them all. And then second monkey goes for the bananas at the top. They spray them all. And then after that, no one goes for the bananas because everybody jumps on them and beats the heck out of them. And so one by one, they take out a monkey and put in a new monkey until all the monkeys are replaced and none of them have ever been sprayed with water. But anytime anybody goes for the banana, they everybody else jumps on them. And so when I see these second generations, they come in, it's like that situation. Why isn't anybody changing anything or going for the monkey? Because that's the way we've always done it around here. And so we see this over and over 
that people get into the same routine of running their company so they can't grow it. And the only way to do it is somebody to come in and take a fresh look at it. How do we change things? How do we do this? And many times the answer is bringing in some new employees from another company through a merger or an acquisition that will inject not only um, software, procedures, processes, standardization, because it's usually one person who grew the company and everything has to go through that, all the decisions. So I see that a lot. And that's me, you know, one of the primary drivers for this is somebody has to take a look or somebody has to say, that's enough. What do we need to do to grow this thing? Because we're knocking our head against the wall, trying to get employees. We're trying to get that client we couldn't get for a long time. We're trying to do the things that we say we're always going to do next year, but business of business comes up and we're unable to do that. So it's an interesting, uh, challenge of changing the tires on the bus while the bus is moving, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Dan, we talked a little bit about the who, what types of companies are doing this and the why, why they might be doing this, but let's talk about the how. I'm assuming one of the first steps is that you have to come up with a valuation for a company, this a company that you're looking to acquire. So how do you do that? It seems like a complicated process. How do you go about putting a valuation on another company? So this seems to be the most difficult challenge for the clients we deal with, Carly, because if you're a uh, an owner, creates your own company, you have an affinity for that company because it's quote unquote your baby, you tend to view it as more valuable than it is. And so a lot of the times I'm just coaching some of the owners who are either looking to be acquired or they're sitting across from the table and I'm, for me, I'm representing the buyer. Here's an example of, of one that actually happened. The guy says, my company's worth $10 million. And I said, okay, tell me how you came to that valuation. And, and my valuation was significantly less. He said, because I need X number of dollars for each of my children and my grandchildren. And so it wasn't tied to the reality of what the company was actually worth or any of the actually moving parts in the company, the assets, you know, the cash flow, how, my, how many clients they have, what those are generating on a repeat basis. You know, the first challenge when I'm working with clients is really just to get them over that psychological hump of I'm in love with my own company and uh, therefore it is worth more because, you know, I've been here to 10 o'clock every night for the last 20 years, it, therefore it's worth more. And so you have to have the difficult discussion sometimes about you ain't all that. <laughs> and so <laughs> it's sometimes it's, uh, you know, uh, people have uh, walked out of the room before. Uh, told me I didn't know what I was talking about. And, uh, and then they come back and say, okay, I talked to my family and uh, let's, let's tell me what you think. And it so sounds like when you go to sell your house, you're always like, oh, without looking at the comps, you're like, oh, I can get a million dollars for my house. And then realize that the guy next door sold for 500,000. Yeah. And then also you, you think, oh, you know, uh, we replaced the kitchen and that cost me like $40,000 or I had to put a pool in because my kid wanted a pool. Therefore my house is worth two X what it should have been. And so a lot of times it's just setting expectations and helping people understand the reality. And sometimes they say, well, I'm not ready to sell now. But a lot of times they're doing it because they're looking for something different. They will either want to exit. So Carly, coming way back to your original question, how do you evaluate it? The first thing is setting the expectations either for yourself, if you're looking at this or um, working with somebody and getting them level set on what the expectation should be in terms of explaining the methodology. And many times it's looking at the reasons that you, you value a company. So if you just look at the technical fundamentals on a financial side, you look at what are the assets worth? I mean, the typical things, what is the cash flow producing? What is the repeating revenue you're getting from client relationships? 
if you lose somebody, you lose that client relationship. Is it the individual that has that relationship? If they leave the company, do you need to retain them? And so a lot of the times you have to build into the acquisition process the ability to retain important employees. So identifying them, working with the current ownership up front, and what are those relationships and who owns those relationships? Usually it's not the company, quote unquote, the company. It's usually individuals that own those relationships. And if they leave, they usually take them with them. And that's a challenge uh, many times. Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsor, the Construction Manager Certification Institute. Today's ANSI accredited certified construction manager brings professionalism to the project and provides leadership by unifying architects, general contractors, engineers, and facility managers to successfully complete the project. The CCM is familiar with the latest techniques and technologies of construction, from prefabrication to building information modeling. He or she thoroughly understands sustainable design and construction, how projects are financed, and how risks can be minimized and effectively shared. The certified construction manager is a communicator, a facilitator, a problem solver, a professional leader. Certified construction managers have the proven knowledge and experience to deliver all these values for every project. Make the CCM part of your strategy for success. For more information on the certified construction manager, please visit cmcertification.org. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit more because you know, we all know that there's a workforce development crisis, especially in the construction industry right now. And that's the last thing that you want to do is, is lose those key employees when a merger or acquisition happens. So how do you prevent that from happening? Sure, sure. One of the things that we do at the beginning of the meeting is when you first do the introductions, you get through them over the psychological hump is, you know, the company may be worth differently than how you evaluate it. And we're going to be looking at this from a, a very technical perspective. Now, many times they want to just acquire it just to take out a competitor. And so there's less financial assessment involved in that. You can do a range, high, medium, low. But many times when we're looking at companies, we want to help them right out of the gate is how do you identify the people that are important? And what I would say is what drives your process and the company support? So if that person went away, would the company change fundamentally on how it operated? And so usually that's a back office person who's doing a lot of support or handling a lot of questions. And the client-facing side, it's usually somebody who has relationships, either a PM or a salesperson if you're large enough, or an executive team member who has had a long-term relationship with a certain client. And that could be a larger construction company that subcontracts work to them or at the actual end client. And sometimes it's a technical person that has very strong skills in your particular industry. And so identifying these people up front and then putting a financial compensation and tying that to them allows them to um, know that they're important to the company and communicate to them. That also means you don't leave out everyone else as a general communication and saying what's going on and having it periodically communicated. Because a lot of times, Carly, I'll tell you, if you don't tell people what's going on, they'll fill in the blanks for you. And it creates fear and people run for the exits. And so one of the biggest things is, is letting them know it's starting because the word will get out no matter how you try. So it's primarily telling the people they're important. There's not going to be a layoff unless there will be one in terms of cutting down and then retaining the key employees. And that usually happens through a collaborative process with the target company. 
Yeah, I think that makes sense. It seems like you just have to be proactive in your communication because I could totally see that happening. Folks just filling in the blank as soon as they hear a buzz of something may happen and people could probably jump to conclusions there. Excuse me. I just had one thing. I had I had lunch with a, an owner once, and one of the employees happened to be at that restaurant near the. You know, we just grabbed a sandwich. By the time the owner got back to the office, there was an acquisition. You know, going to happen apparently, according to all the employees. And he was just asking me, "Hey, if I didn't want to do this, what would happen?" So you know, you really have to communicate. So we had to put something out right away. And he never went through with that process even. So it was interesting. He may have gotten cold feet after he saw the reaction of his teeth. <laughs> Well, two of his primary project managers came and said, hey, if we're getting acquired by X other company, we don't want to be part of that. We're going to leave. And so he killed it. But, so you're right. But uh, it was interesting, um, to Carly's point, you really have to over-communicate on this and put financial incentives in place for people who you really need to retain through the process. And part of that is identifying, I need this person just through the acquisition I need this person in the medium term to get new people trained in the other company or other people trained, or I need this person for the long term because they're key to my company. And it may sound cold, but that's kind of how you have to do it and then compensate those people uh, appropriately to make sure that they stay. So it sounds like, you know, employee retention is one of those risk factors that you have to consider ahead of time. Can we talk about some of the other risk factors and what might be most significant to consider before a merger or acquisition? Sure. You know, people always talk about culture. You know, Nick, a lot of the times people will say, oh, you know, culture, it's this fluffy thing I don't need to worry about. But in reality, it is true. If two companies, you try to bring them together and they don't mesh, unless you're going to be running them independently and separately, if the people are running into each other in the lunchroom or, you know, in in meetings and the culture is not a fit, the it will not be successful. And I, I tell people all the time, the biggest reason acquisitions and mergers fail is through the um, integration process. How do we get these companies working together? So I, I would say the biggest thing is making sure that the cultures are not a clash, number one. The second thing I would say is do your due diligence. And a lot of times I see companies where they don't do their homework. They just take things for granted. And so I always tell people, do your due diligence in terms of if they say they've got this client who's doing X a year, get the accounting paperwork, talk to that client, find out exactly what the details are with them in terms of the documents and document everything. So a lot of times through the negotiation process, somebody will say, oh yeah, that's good. We'll, we'll, we'll agree to that. And it's not documented. And then by the time I get there, the deal's about to be signed. They said, hey, what about you know you paying my health care for the rest of my life? as part of the transaction. Oh, we just said that at the time, we've moved past that. So I would say the biggest risks are document everything, do your due diligence in terms of interviewing all the people involved, the clients, and look at the financials. A lot of the times they will not document particular warranties that they've done on work. They don't carry that on the accounting system, even though they've warrantied work, so they're not allocating money to that. So you could be buying a company that you owe a lot of warranty work or, or certain things that you hadn't expected. And it's a great surprise when you find that out. By the time I get there, it's a little too late. So I always tell people, you know, get involved earlier on in these kind of discussions. Well, I could probably sit here and talk to you all afternoon about this because this, I find this very interesting, but it all seems a bit overwhelming and I have time for one more question. And so I really want to get your uh, thoughts on whether or not 
if somebody's getting ready to go through this, is there like a checklist or something of things that need to be done or should be done that they can look at or review? Everyone knows to Google things, but as far as you know, is there something out there as a resource that would be helpful for our listeners to be looking at? You had mentioned earlier the articles and the presentation I'd given. Maybe you can put a link to that in the materials, but I think it kind of simplifies that. But I think that the three things that I would say are, number one, figure out the reason that you're doing this. Are you looking to grow your revenue? Are you looking to get some, some more support on the back end? Are you looking to grow geographically into another area? What are the reasons you're doing this? Are you looking to exit the business? So I'd say, number one, what are the reasons you, you want to go through an acquisition process uh, or acquire someone else? Number two, is there a fit for the company that you're looking at? Why is that the company that you're looking at? And number three, I'd say, do your due diligence and Talk to your banker, talk to someone like myself, which is not a commercial, but I, you really need to go with somebody who has been through this before. Document everything. The third thing I would say is don't fall in love with your deal. The longer people spend doing the due diligence process, doing their homework, meeting with people, they always feel more invested in time. Therefore, I cannot pull out of this deal. Therefore, I must go forward and, and buy the company, merge with the company. And many times, you just need to walk away because it's not a good deal for your company. And just because you spent a lot of time and money on it, you shouldn't have to acquire the company. So I I'll tell people, don't fall in love with your deal. And the last thing is, I have an article on this, BATNA, best alternative to a negotiated agreement. Always go into a deal with another deal ready to go. It sounds cold, but always have other options. And so that people always fall in love with their deal and so they're like, I have to go through it, because therefore I have nothing else but always go into it with another deal ready to go. And that doesn't mean it has to be completely baked, but know that you have another option and the option may be do nothing because it's less risky and it won't cost the company as much money. So doing nothing is always an option. Just because you've invested the time means I've done my homework and therefore it's not a good thing for my company. I love the acronym and we'll call it a patent pending, trademark pending on uh, the acronym there for you, Dan. It's truly been a pleasure having you on the show, and, and it's been incredibly in, insightful, so thank you. Thank you. You can find additional information on the Maxim Consulting Group website. That's www.maximconsulting.com under their Insights tab. You can also watch the webinar that Carly and Dan hosted on the CMA website for CMA members. That's absolutely free. On the next episode of the Construction Leaders Podcast, we have invited a few guests from CMA's Advocacy Committee to talk to us about some of their new initiatives how they affect the construction industry, and the new CMA Advocacy Center. Make sure to download the podcast or subscribe and follow us on social media at CMAA underscore HQ. Don't forget to leave us a review with your thoughts of today's episode and let us know what you'd like to hear on upcoming podcasts. On behalf of CMA, I'm Nick Soda with Carly Trump. Thank you for listening.